All right, <clears throat> let me welcome you back to the room. We're going to start in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 this morning. Galatians chapter 2 is our text, our primary text that we're focusing on this morning, verses 11 through 14. I think if you have a pew Bible, it's on page 565, uh, maybe 566 by now. It's such small writing. You see, I, I, I can hardly see on those... <laughs> Those uh, chair Bibles. <clears throat> Sound like an old guy. Uh, <clears throat> Galatians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 11 through 14. We don't always do this, but I'm going to ask you to stand when you have that text. And, uh, and we're going to read. We're going to stand in honor of the Word of God and, um, and, and look at verses 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you that by your word we are changed. You use your word in the context of the church and the power of the Holy Spirit to bring changes to our lives. And we thank you that this is the word that you have prepared for us to hear today. Would you give us ears to hear that we may repent and believe and continue to pursue you in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the text that we're focusing on uh, today addresses conflict and opposition, confrontation, topics I know that you all love, right? Everybody loves confrontation. Uh, I, I do think that there is actually a small percentage of the general population that thrives on conflict, that almost needs it to feel normal. Maybe it's an environment, a product of their environment, the way they grew up, where maybe there was shouting or screaming or constant bickering, that in order for some people just to feel normal, there has to be some level of conflict, and maybe they stir that up or manufacture conflict in some way. Uh, but there is a small percentage of people that need conflict in their life. Um, that's probably one extreme, though. There's probably an equally small percentage of the general population that is the opposite, that run from conflict, run from confrontation, that if there's even just the slightest hint of sarcasm or hostility in their voice, they kind of turtle up and, 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 and try to get away from that. But there's probably the rest, um, a good bit of us in the middle that don't need conflict, um, uh, you know, and are sort of in the middle that will deal with conflict when it comes up and it will deal with confrontation when it comes up. Um, but for the most part, we don't thrive on it and we don't completely avoid it. Uh, I heard someone say not too long ago, maybe a few years ago, and it's kind of become a mantra for me in my own mind, is that some of the best ministry is always on the other side of awkward. Um, think about uh, this example. If, if uh, There are uh, dozens of times when um, I feel prompted to share the gospel with somebody, and then when I remember that the best ministry or the best relationships are often on the other side of awkward, it, it allows me to kind of see that speed bump of awkwardness as a temporary thing and not something permanent, but, but the best ministry uh, is on the other side of awkward. Um, I, I, I'll often say to somebody, hey, this might sound unusual, but I feel compelled to tell you something. And, and that sort of awkwardness, um, once I get past that uh, and into a gospel or into a conversation, um, it, it's often... Um, really rewarding. It's often a beautiful thing, but, but sometimes that awkward level 
keeps many of us away. It's like a wall that keeps us out. Some of the best relationships are on the other side of awkward. Um, some of the, um, you've probably seen those memes where a person um, sees a spider or a mouse or something and, and then they say, well, I guess we have to burn our house down, right? Um, some people treat relationships like that. If there's a seemingly unresolvable conflict, that, that wall, you just think, oh, I just got to burn the whole relationship down. I guess I'll never speak to that person again. And uh, many relationships are broken because of um, because the unwillingness to get through some sort of awkward. Really, some of the most satisfying, fulfilling relationships that I enjoy today have had bumps in the road, and you care about them enough to address those conflicts. I've been in a lot of awkward meetings when you're trying to dissect the situation that blew up and there was a misunderstanding or a miscommunication and uh, there's a fracture in the relationship and, and you do the hard work of relational uh, reconciliation and those are the relationships I enjoy the most. It's not the ones that have gone away that uh, I, you know, I, I weren't worth reconciling. It's terrible to say, but it's probably true for many of us. It's those ones that we fight for that matter. The truth about conflict and opposition and confrontation is that it's a daily regular part of your life. Genesis 1 through 2 and Revelation 21 and 22 um, are the only four chapters in the Bible that form as bookends where there isn't some sort of conflict in between. After the fall and before the redemption of all ages, our lives are going to be defined by conflict. You will not have a conflict-free life. You will have low to mid-grade conflict all your life, punctuated by spikes of intense conflict, right? Yay! <laughs> right? Woo! Thank you. I'm so excited. Um, but as redeemed people, as people who have been reconciled People who were formerly enemies of God, right? Scripture doesn't, I told you this last week, Scripture doesn't allow some sort of middle ground where there are those people who are evil on one side and those people who are redeemed in Christ on the other side. And then there are people in the middle. There is no middle ground. Scripture categorizes you as an enemy of God outside of the redemption of Christ Jesus. There is no middle ground. So conflict um, is a part of that. As um, former enemies of God who have been reconciled to God, now we have the ministry of reconciliation. We should be the greatest people, the greatest examples of conflict resolution ever because we have been re reconciled as enemies of God to children of God. And so now Christ won our redemption on the cross, and then he has commissioned us to announce that reconciliation as ministers and ambassadors of reconciliation. We read Romans 12, 9 through 19 about how we should resolve conflict and how we should live peaceably with each other. Um, there's another passage in Colossians 3, uh, 12 through 17, um, how we should operate as believers. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against each other, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Do you see that? He's not saying that the church is going to be some clean environment free of conflict. He's not describing a context where there's not misunderstandings and when there's not miscommunication and when there's not real grievances against each other. And I'm not talking about in your life. I'm talking about here in the congregation, in the church. So he tells us, as those who are chosen, holy, and beloved, he says to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Colossians 3.14, I'm continuing, says, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We are to be at peace with one another, bearing with each other, forgiving each other, uh, and, and sort of working through this issue of confrontation and opposition and conflict in a way that promotes unity and peace and, and renewed relationships within the body of Christ and also outside of the body of Christ. What's the occasion for this? Why are we talking about this today? We'll look back at Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. But when Cephas, that's, um, the, that's Peter, right? When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So just picture the scene here. This is Paul writing to the Galatians, and he's remembering an occasion in his past. Um, Paul is remembering that when he was a part of the church at Antioch, just north of Israel, um, along the Mediterranean coast, if you just kind of remember your Pauline um, timeline, um, in 33, 34 AD, Jesus was crucified and ascended. Within a few years, um, Saul had uh, risen up against the church and persecuted the church. Stephen was killed. Um, Paul went on the road to Damascus and, um, and was converted by a blinding light. He was in Damascus and Arabia for three years. Then he went into Jerusalem for 15 days. And at some point, um, he went back into Syria and um, to uh, Cilicia and was there for 14 or so years, 10 or so years. He's, so he's recalling a time in that time period, that sort of 15-year time gap, when Peter came north to visit the church at Antioch. And while Peter was there, a Jew, um, he was freely congregating and associating with Gentile believers in the church, eating together and being in their homes, praying together, worshiping together, talking together, having meals together, doing just life together. And Peter had no problem. Why didn't he have a problem? Well, do you remember the scene in Acts 11 when Peter is on Simon the Tanner's roof and he has this vision of a sheet being let down from heaven and the uh, inside of the sheet were all kinds of animals, right? And what does it say? Rise, kill, and eat, Peter. And he says, there's no way I'm going to hunt and eat these unclean animals. Um, and God says, don't call anything unclean that I have made clean. That happened a few times. And then um, Peter starts to get the picture that God is cleansing things that he considered unclean. Us, Gentiles, right? Gentiles are now clean to Jewish people. God is, this is a new thing at, at this particular time. Gentiles were not a part of Israel. You remember your redemptive history. How did God break into creation to redeem people? Through Abraham, he purchased a people. He made a people for himself and they were ethnically Jewish. And from those people, um, that's how God began to build redemptive history in the Old Testament. But then in the New Testament, salvation is not just for ethnic Jews, but it is for all of us, for the world. And so in that um, fault line along those lines, that fracture um, between ethnic Jew to Gentile, there were obviously cultural clashes, right? I mean, obviously there were tensions within the congregation. Imagine if you went to a potluck and you're a Gentile and the Gentile brings steaks that were, um, you know, um, sacrificed to the Zeus in the temple a few days ago, and they were on sale at the discount you know, market, and, and, and they're bringing in bacon, and they're bringing, and, and all these ethnic Jewish people who are can't eat but kosher foods, that's a serious fight on your hands in the basement of those churches, right? I mean, you're, there's a dividing line in that, but, but in the gospel, that's what was beautiful, is in the gospel, there was uni unity and reconciliation, and, and there was a um, that tension became less and less and less of an issue as Jesus was magnified and as they were walking together. So Paul is recalling this exact situation. Um, 
This is a believer, Paul, um, a leader in the church, and he's confronting Peter. He opposed him to his face. Uh, A believer confronting an apostle. One leader disagreeing with another leader. Can you imagine that scene? Have you seen this sort of thing within churches? Um, I've been a part of interesting churches. Um, Sometimes in the South, uh, you know, you'll find... um, business meetings that go sideways. Have you ever been a part of one of those business meetings where there's conflict and there's leadership opposition and then there's fighting? And anybody, just raise your hand if you've been a part of those business meetings. Part of my Bible school um, training, we had to go and uh, research the minutes of church business meetings in the 1700s and the 1800s and the early 1900s. And this one that I particularly chose uh, always uh, tickles me. This, This particular person in the 1700s was, um, um, he was plowing and um, the note said that uh, on the occasion when his plow broke and his horse became unruly, he began whipping the horse and cursing. Cursing within earshot of another person and that person reported him and in the church minutes of the business meeting it said that they confronted him uh, and that they all voted to forgive him and then they all voted to kick him out of the church. (laughs) It was like, we forgive you but you can't cuss at your horse in in our congregation. Um, Business meetings are interesting and uh, and if you've ever read the minutes of old churches, they, they take these kind of things very seriously, way more seriously than we did. I'm way off track here already, but there used to be a person who would walk around in the church and they would have a stick and if they saw you nod off, they would whack you with that stick. I think we should do that. Dave, you want to get a stick? If you see anybody fall asleep, um, you have my permission to poke them. Um, but this is a believer, Paul, confronting an apostle. And listen, this is one of the most beautiful features of Christianity in that each believer in Christ has equal access to the Father and is equally filled with the Holy Spirit. We call this doctrine the priesthood of the believer. Um, and, and this is beautiful in the sense that you never outgrow the need for godly confrontation. There's not one person in this room who is above the need for confrontation. Not me, not you, not elders, not leaders. There's a process in which that happens, but there's not a single person here that isn't open or susceptible to confrontation done the right way. This is Paul opposing Peter to his face in a meeting. Have you ever had a face-to-face confrontation? Uh, Have things ever gotten heated? You feel your emotions take over and you say regrettable things or you explode or something along those lines? This is the scene in the church that was happening for Paul and Peter. Why? Look at verse 12 and 13. Before certain men came from James... Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when these people came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So what's happening here? James sent people to Antioch, and they were ethnic Jews and they lean toward the legalistic Judaizer way of thinking. They're the ones that Paul is writing against that we're adding to the gospel. It's not enough just to be saved. You also have to obey the law of Moses. So James, Jesus' brother... Um, Jesus' brother is the pastor at the Jerusalem church. He's also the author of the book of James. Not that James, right? You know from your Gospels, there's Peter, James, and John, the inner three that Jesus uh, ministered with and, and sort of made as his inner circle. Peter, James, and John. James, the brother of John, he dies in Acts chapter 12. 
Um, and he is no longer. Acts 12, 1-3, about that time Herod laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. This is not that James. James, the brother of Jesus. Um, you remember at Jesus's um, crucifixion, no one was there, no one in his family was there. It was just his mother. Um, his brothers didn't believe him. They all thought he was crazy. But at some point after the resurrection, his brothers not only came to faith in, in, in Jesus, uh, but became leaders in the church. James, Jesus's brother, the pastor at the church of Jerusalem, he sent men from his congregation or from the church at Jerusalem to Antioch when he heard about what God was doing amongst the Gentiles. This is probably 10 or 15 years after Jesus has risen. Um, Very young church. Why would James send the circumcision party to Gentile mixed churches? Maybe James was trying to expand the narrow viewpoint of these Judaizers. Maybe James understood the gospel and he, he wanted to send these people who had a very narrow view. He said, why don't you just go investigate? Go check it out. Go see the grace of God demonstrated. Peter saw it and Peter reported it when he went into Cornelius's house and he saw that the Holy Spirit had fallen on the Gentiles in the same way and reported it back to us. Peter saw that and that's what Peter's up there in Antioch. So maybe James is in a sympathetic, kind way do you understand? He's trying to help. Maybe he's trying to help them narrow, uh, loosen their narrow view. Uh, maybe that's why. Or it's possible also that James was skeptical and slow to believe that God was opening salvation to the Gentiles, and so maybe he's maybe he's the one who sent the spies in to spy out the freedom. We don't know why James is sending people up to view, but when he did, these certain men came from James. And Peter, when he saw these people come, he said, all right, at some point, I'm not going to eat with the Gentiles anymore. Um, Have you ever been snubbed by somebody? Has somebody ever uh, been your friend and then for some unknown reason, they stop being your friend and they treat you kind of rudely in public or something like that? Imagine if you're a Gentile believer and you're looking up to the apostle Peter, right? Who saw the resurrection, who saw Jesus glorified, who saw all these things. And then Peter, all of a sudden, uh, one minute he's talking to you and eating with you, coming and hanging out with you. And, and then maybe within a few weeks he stops and maybe he doesn't even address you. and Maybe he doesn't talk to you. That's hurtful. That's painful. And so Peter did this. He withdrew. And because Peter did it, what happened? Other Jews started to do the same. And then because other Jews started to do the same, Barnabas even was led astray by that hypocrisy. And it happened because they feared this powerful group of men. So that's why Paul opposed him. So look at verse 14. Paul said, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So this is the... This is the foundation for the confrontation. And I want you to hear it clearly. Paul is not just irritated because it bothered him personally. This isn't a preferential issue. This isn't a personal taste issue. Paul isn't just irked for no reason. Paul is irked because their conduct was counter to the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is that God is redeeming people not just from ethnic Jew, ethnic Israel. He's redeeming people from all the world. Doesn't matter what your background is. Doesn't matter what your language is. The gospel is for everyone. There's not a single person in your life who does not deserve to hear the gospel. All right? It is for everyone. The good news is for everyone. Everyone is worthy to hear the gospel. Isn't that great? There's not a nation, there's not a a people group that is not deserving to hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul saw that their conduct was not lined up with that. They were removing themselves from fellowship with Gentiles. And and so Paul said that's not uh, lining up with the truth of the gospel. So he said in, in front of Peter, to Peter in front of them all, in verse 14, if you, though a Jew... Live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the heart of hypocrisy. Paul 
is not impressed with status or fame. He's not swayed or pressured to back away from anyone who needs confrontation. This lends itself to fear of men issues. Peter withdrew from the Gentiles because he had a fear of man. This led to Barnabas and the rest of the Jews following Peter, and then you have this division. You can see how one person can divide a congregation, right? One person can destroy a church. And it's not just one person, it's Peter. And when Peter withdraws, the rest of the Jews and then Barnabas withdraws. In Sunday school, not too long ago, we started to study um, heart issues. Uh, We called them idol clusters. Idol clusters are things that in our own hearts we tend to gravitate toward, these deep things that we worship. And we talked about five of them in our class, uh, sensual pleasure, always needing sensual pleasure, that's a heart idol. Money and possessions, that's another heart idol. Uh, Seeking comfort and convenience and tranquility and ease, that's a heart idol that we we can arrange our lives toward any of these things. A fourth was success and power and control. We can all have these sort of heart idols, but one of those was the fear of man being accepted by people, having men's approval. And that's a, it's a very common issue. You'd be lying if you say that you don't do things because you want people to like you or you don't want to be rejected by people or you compromise something because you're afraid of how it would look or you're afraid of how it might affect a relationship or you shy away from something. Paul did not have this fear of man issue. He confronted Peter. And I want you to hear this really clearly because it's uncomfortable. But confrontation is an important aspect of love. Love without confrontation is not love. Think about some of the most um, well-known confrontations in Scripture. Think about David and his sin with Bathsheba and uh, the killing of Uriah. Um, Think about Nathan after David has lived in this sin for quite a long time. Nathan rebuking David, confronting him, opposing him to his face. It's an act of love. It's an act of love to confront someone who is actively destroying their life in sin. Confrontation is an important feature of biblical love. It's the opportunity to right a wrong. It's the opportunity to reroute someone who is on a wrong track. It's the chance to be used by God in a disciplinary way. If you read in Hebrews, discipline is a, is a way we determine how God loves us. When God disciplines us, it's because He loves us. Confrontation is a part of being used by God to shape someone into the image of Christ. And, and listen, you confront all the time in a variety of ways, right? Somebody, maybe it's like a Richter scale some confrontations barely register. Somebody says something and you just give a a sigh or an eye roll. That's a confrontation, right? Not going to put up with that behavior is kind of what you're you're saying with a sigh. I'm terrible at this. I I really, I should be better. But I I tell myself, I have like a record in my my mind. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. And I come into the house and I see a dish somewhere and I'm like or a light switch on, and I'm like, who left this light on, right? Or why is the heater in the bathroom still on? No one's up there. The, I, I say stuff like that all the time. Those are just these sort of mini confrontations. It doesn't mean I don't love the people in my household. It, it just means that I can't control my, my tongue enough to not say something, and I have to keep record. I tr- last week, I said three days I went without saying a single word. I didn't say a single word. If I saw 17 cups laying around, half filled with some drink, every kid needs 10 cups a day, right? Uh, this is me being passive aggressive, uh, me confronting my children in public. I'm just kidding. I'm, it's not that bad. And they're, um, 
they're not that they're not bad at all but it's me it's my issue but we confront people in little ways like this uh, but then there are also um, you know on this Richter scale these massive confrontations think about uh, you've, I hope you've never been a part of one of these but um, but when you gather a group of people and you you have to sit someone down and they don't know it's one of these confrontations these heated confrontations a verbal confrontation with some volume, with some emotion, maybe a group confrontation with tears and pleading, maybe a community confrontation. How do you confront well? It could be complicated, right? When do you do it? At what point do you come along and, and, and you do this? When do you refrain? When do you pull back and say, now's not the time? When do you just let it go? Um, but when do you put your foot down and you stop tolerating destructive, sinful behavior? Paul could have decided not to confront Peter, right? He could have said, um, let's just wait it out. Let's just, let me just lead by example and I'll go eat with the Gentile believers and I'll remove myself from the circumcision group. He could have done that. He could have just prayed for Peter, right? I'm just going to pray for him for seven months, see if it changes. Or he could have just let Peter continue and just, I'm just going to wait for God to convict him, right? Those are all the options that you, you kind of instinctively know that, right? You intuitively know, like, do I say something or do I not? Do I pray about it? Do I not? Do I just let it go? Do I not? How do we know? How do we know when it's time? Let me give you some guidelines. Let me give you some guidelines to know what circumstances are present, what sort of boxes need to be checked to make it known when the right time is for you to confront somebody. Ask yourself some of these kinds of questions. Is this a personal thing? Is, is it just me? Am I irritated? Yes, for me, I'm irritated. I should not say something every time I walk in the door. If something, you know, if, I, if, if, if there's a dish out somewhere or whatever, or if there is a heater on or a light bulb on. That's just a personal issue, right? It's me being petty, right? It's not, I don't need to say something. I got to stop from saying something, right? That's just me. Uh, I tell my kids all the time, scripture says, um, children, um, do not provoke your father to anger, right? <laughs> Isn't that what the Bible says, right? No, it says fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, right? They always correct me on that. I don't know why it's not scripture, but I've looked and that's not scripture. Scripture does not say children stop provoking your dad. So it's my issue. It's a personal, you understand what I mean? If it's a personal issue, let it go. Absorb it. Absorb what can be absorbed by yourself. Is it personal? Okay, that, that lets you know if it's something that you should, is it a preferential issue? Is it a taste issue? Uh, is it a petty thing? Uh, another question to ask yourself, um, is it sinful? Is this a sin issue? And if it's a sin issue, we all must be ruthlessly aggressive at killing sin. Uh, John Owen wrote a book called The Mortification of the Flesh. It's a huge volume, but it depicts what's been lost in our culture, and that is the ruthless elimination of sin in our lives and in the lives of people within the church. If it's a sin issue, it's an issue that Satan is actively involved in, and it must be confronted. Is it destructive? There are things that are not sinful in and of themselves. Eating, money, food is amoral. Um, money is amoral, but we can use them in a sinful way to gain control or to manipulate. So if it's a destructive thing and a sinful thing, if it's a life-threatening thing, those are things that fall into a category of yes. Confront and love. Other questions. Is it gospel? Does this... Um, change the content of the gospel or change my understanding? Is there a theological issue? If it is, yes, confront. Understanding a triage of theological issues. There is a top level thing that every believer must believe in order to be a believer, right? Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, and, and no one can come to the Father but through him. That's a top tier, top level issue that we're called to contend for the faith. That matters, 
You can't compromise on that and say, eh, there are many ways to heaven and, and you can be in the church and believe that, that uh, any, any way in the world leads to heaven, right? That's, that's, not a, that's a gospel issue worth fighting for, opposing. Scripture is God's word worth fighting for. All those top-level issues are worth fighting for. There are preference issues in the church, what songs we sing, how we dress. Those are bottom-level things that we don't need to fight about. But guess what happens in the church? We fight about bottom-level stuff all the time. And we don't fight about theological things that we should fight about. Church people can be petty, right? Those church people. Um, Some situations require personal examination saying, is there a log in my own eye versus a splinter in their eye, right? Jesus said, um, don't try to remove a a splinter from somebody's eye when you yourself have a log in your eye. First, go take the log out of your eye. Meaning, don't confront somebody about an issue when you struggle with that issue 10 times more than they do. Is it gospel? Is it theological? Is it sinful? Is it destructive? Is it life-threatening? Or is it just a matter of personal preference or taste? Am I misunderstanding something? Am I overreacting? Am I wrong? Those are great questions to add to your filter of when a person should be confronted. Some situations call for immediate strong confrontation. Some don't. Um, Proverbs 19.11 says, A person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Some things just needed to be overlooked by you. And it's a sign of spiritual maturity not to get irritated by every little thing that happens. It's a sign of your maturity to absorb something, to overlook an offense. Even if somebody to your face says something offensive, you can absorb things because of the grace of Christ in in your life, the demonstration of grace in your own life, right? Jesus didn't... Jesus isn't petty up there keeping track of all your, all right, 1 Corinthians 13, you heard it at every one of your weddings, right? Love keeps no record of wrongs, right? There is an absorbing nature within the body of Christ. We don't have to be petty. We can absorb things. It is uh, to one's glory to overlook an offense. To overlook an offense is to take no notice of wrongs done against yourself, it means you're refusing to retaliate. You're refusing to seek revenge. You're letting all those things go. And in a word, you're forgiving each other as you've been forgiven. Let me give you a key to confrontation. A key to confrontation, whether it's being personally confronted by another person or when you need to confront someone, is humility. Humility is critical in confronting and being confronted. Uh, My first um, time to be a pastor, a lead pastor, which by the way is the difference between being a babysitter and a a parent, okay? Like I was an associate pastor and an evangelist at um, five or so different churches from 1992 until 2013, all right? So I've been a pastor a full-time pastor, a lead pastor for seven, eight years now. This is my first time, right? So, and it's a, it's a massive learning curve. And praise God, I'm not who I was 10 years ago, but I'm not who I should be. And Lord willing, I won't be who I am today 10 years from now, right? But in my first three or four years as a lead pastor, let me just tell you, I did things really wrong. <laughs> I got criticized often, like weekly, Someone didn't like a sermon, they would tell me about it. Someone didn't like, a, someone didn't like the way I handled the text, they would say, you should handle it this way. And, and I just heard criticism all the time. Being a leader, I always was aware of all the things that everyone thought that I was doing wrong or the ways they disagreed or something like that. And, and it was in direct confrontation or it was in subtle, passive-aggressive ways or it was an email or it was a, a through the grapevine. I heard from so-and-so who heard from so-and-so who heard from so-and-so. And I did not handle this well at all, <laughs> okay? I mean, my first instinct was angry and I, I would fire off an email and, and, and I would get defensive, and then I would go through these stages. Anger, defensive, attack, 
mess up the relationship. That's like step five. And then like step six was circle back around and say, you know what? There was probably some truth in what you said originally. (laughs) And then there was some patching up and then there was acceptance and all that. But after, listen, after three or four years of that sort of criticism, I got to a point where I skipped one, two, three, and four. Okay. Immediately after I could hear some criticism and I immediately, I didn't get angry at all. Uh, I would I would not attack them, and I wouldn't defend myself. So those three first steps, eliminating that was huge. Skipping right to the point where I said, you know what, there's probably some truth in what you have to say. And, and I don't mind owning that. Listen, that's humility. Now, that doesn't come natural to me. It probably doesn't come natural to you. If somebody confronts you, you get defensive, then you attack what they do wrong, and then everything that they do wrong, and then you're, you're bringing in everything from the past experiences, and you're throwing everything at them to, to attack them in the way that you feel attacked and get defensive and all that. But if you can skip the anger, <laughs> the defensiveness, and then the attacking stage, and you can skip right to step four and just say, you know what, you're probably right. You know what that does? That, that allows them to say, uh, to be a little bit more measured in what, in what they're criticizing you about. You criticize me, or at this point I get to step four and say, you're probably right, I can own that, and I can own that, but, but I don't have to own this. And there's some wisdom involved there through the confrontation process where you can say, listen, that's on you, and that's your issue, and I, and I don't have to own your issues. You had an expectation of me. You never communicated that expectation to me. You're angry that I didn't meet your expectation. Listen, I don't have to own that. I'm not responsible for what you thought I should do without ever communicating what I should do, or me even maybe agreeing with what I thought you thought I thought you should do. Like, you see how convoluted things get? But we, we get in these petty fights all the time because um, we, we, we don't expect or communicate expectations. So all these grievances we work through. But godly wisdom brings us to a point where we can skip steps one through three and get to four and say, I can own what I need to own. And you're right, I am responsible for that. Leading to godly apologies, right? Uh, Godly apologies take uh, responsibility for our actions, right? You probably heard um, this week that um, Alec Baldwin said, I am in no way responsible. I reject all responsibility um, to which... extreme ownership guy, what's his name? Uh, Jocko Willink said, this is extreme disownership. He doesn't accept any responsibility, right? Um, The idea is that you can own what you need to own and take responsibility for what you you are responsible for. Um, As I said earlier, the key is humility. Skipping the defensiveness, skipping the attacking, owning what you can own and not owning, and then asking for forgiveness and apologizing in a godly way. All of us need to do that. That's what it means to bear with one another in a godly biblical community. This is what happened with Paul. Paul and Peter, they, they reconciled. And the truth of the gospel was um, concentrated and magnified because they went through this process of confrontation. Let me close with this. Let me close with these two application points. The one is the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus accomplished this work of redemption, reconciling us to God, and he expects us to be a people of reconciliation. The saddest thing in the world is a church that can't reconcile, or two believers who won't reconcile with each other. God expects us to be a people of reconciliation, and that means that we of all people, by the power of the Holy Spirit, must be really good at dealing with conflict. Um, a second point of application is how do we go about godly confrontation within the church? Because we have these commands, right? Titus 3, 10, and 11. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with that person. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and self-condemned. You see what Paul wrote there? After confronting Peter once and the second time, after that have nothing more to do with the apostle Peter, knowing that he's warped and sinful. Can you, can you believe that? 
That's an application of Paul's command to Titus in 3, 10 through 11. And it's a command for us that if someone within this congregation were stirring up division, actively recruiting people to be on their side and dividing people from another side, that there is a warning for gospel unity within the church that we must confront a divisive person. And after warning them once or twice, after that we are to have nothing to do with them. This is a process uh, called excommunication. And to an outside world, it seems like the worst thing ever to excommunicate somebody. But listen to 1 Corinthians 5. Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians, the church of Corinth had a situation that's so R-rated, I can't even really describe it in church because there's children here. But you can read it for yourself. In 1 Corinthians 4 and 5, there is a person who is involved in immoral behavior. And Paul is saying, I can't believe it. You're not, not only are you not confronting this person, but you're, you're um, proud of what he's doing. So Paul says, when you are assembled at your congregation in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you should deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Do you see the, the value that Paul and the Holy Spirit Jesus is giving? They're saying to value someone's eternal soul over their temporal comfort. You see that difference? Oh, I shouldn't confront. It's going to make them feel uncomfortable. I'll just deal with that behavior or I'll avoid that relationship or whatever. No, Paul is saying, hand that person over to Satan, kick them out of the church for the destruction of their flesh so that eventually their spirit may be saved. This is the process of church discipline. Matthew 18 it says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Listen, most church discipline operates at this level. You come to me, you say, hey, I have this issue against you. And I say, you know what, you're right. And I apologize and I confess that sin. And, and you come to me and confront me and that, that happens. And if there's repentance, then, then there's a win for both of us. And that first level of church discipline happens all the time in this congregation. Level one happens week in, week out. Trust me. Level two, if, if that person doesn't listen and we're still battling, then you go with a couple more people over a period of time and you, and you go and you confront. And if they win, if, if they um, don't refuse to listen, right? Um, then verse 17 in Matthew 18, if they refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, let them be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, Treat them as someone that the world would hate. Not that we're to hate them, but that we are not to associate with someone in such a way that it leavens the loaf. The loaf, right? You know, that means that like the yeast will spread to the rest of the church. If you don't remove the cancer, it will spread. Why? Why do we have to confront sin? Because the greatest act of love is to assist someone in the securing of their soul for eternity. To ignore sin and to never confront is not loving. Sin is a cancer to our soul and to the body of Christ, and it must be removed and it must be kept in remission. Jesus dealt with sin, and we have to deal with sin. We have to deal with these issues. We can't just let them go. In coming weeks, you will hear about a church discipline situation that has been ongoing for two and a half years. We will go through with the steps of church discipline. And I want you to hear me from a pastor's heart. From a pastor's heart, I've been involved from the beginning of this confrontative process. And there's not a day or a week that goes by that I'm not praying for reconciliation, redemption, for this person who is caught in sin to be delivered from this sin. And through two and a half years of working this process, 
in humility and with lots of people alongside. This is the second time in my ministry of 30 years that an issue has got to this point where it is today, where a confrontation and an excommunication from the church. I mean, we're probably three, four, maybe five weeks away from this happening. I just want you to know that just because you don't see church discipline doesn't mean that it's not happening. And when you do see it happening, when it gets to this level, hear me really clearly. It is for love and for reconciliation with the understanding that sin left unchecked destroys. Sin left unchecked and allowed to grow destroys the person. And the the most hateful thing you can do is allow that sin to grow in their life and just tolerate it. Just blow it off. Now listen, we do this with humility because we understand that there's not a single one of us here that's not capable of great sin. Not a single one of us. If King David, a man after God's own heart, can commit adultery and murder, who are you to think that you can't commit some atrocious sin. Me, who am I to think that I can't do that? We're all three or four days away from some sort of confrontation, right? I mean, just live in your flesh for a couple of days. And most of us operate on day two already, right? I mean, we're all just a couple of days away. Humility is key. And, and humility with love, knowing that we're not trying to hurt this person at all. We're trying to help a person by removing uh, the cancer of sin in their life. Listen, I know that all this has just got real, 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 real. It's been real for me for a couple of years. It's been real to a lot of people within the congregation for a few years. Um, and it's to a point where it's going gonna, it's gonna to be dealt with in the next few weeks. Um, you be in prayer for that. And you be in prayer for your own heart as you uh, think about church discipline, knowing that it's a, an issue of love, it's an issue of love to, to not allow someone to continue in deep, destructive, dark sin. It's an issue of humility too. But it's necessary within the congregation. It's necessary. Paul opposed Peter to his face. Father, uh, thank you for our time together this morning. Uh, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the guidelines, for the wisdom, for the... Um, the power of your Holy Spirit that makes uh, the process workable and easier and possible. Uh, Not only does your Holy Spirit make it possible, but your Holy Spirit provides the love that is necessary. Because to do this with an unloving heart or to do this in a pharisaical, legalistic way is just as cruel as to not confront in the first place. Your Holy Spirit provides the compassion and the tears and the crying and the burdening and the pleading with another person to repent of clear sin. So we praise you for the gift of the Holy Spirit and the grace that um, that brings us to a place where where confrontation is good and healthy. Help us to know when. Help us as, as a church not to shy away from it and not to jump into it as though we're just conflict hungry, but to understand from your point of view that confrontation is a means of discipline and making us more like Jesus. And we pray that you would use discipline though painful at the time, to produce a harvest of righteousness for your glory and for your kingdom and for the purity of your church. In Jesus' name, amen.